This is Real Fiction Radio. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry, and today I'm in conversation with Maza Mengiste, author of The Shadow King. I know historically that doubles have been used in war in Ethiopia. I believe in the first conflict with Italy, there was somebody who impersonated the emperor, and this was to serve as a decoy, to send the enemy in one direction while the army came in another. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. This is Real Fiction, a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. Mazamengiste was born in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. A Fulbright scholar and professor at Queens College, she is the author of Beneath the Lion's Gaze. It was named one of Guardian's 10 best contemporary African books. Her new novel, The Shadow King, will be published in September by W.W. Norton and Company. The Shadow King brings into focus a little-known slice of Ethiopian history, the Italian invasion of 1935, considered the first conflict of World War II. One review said this about the novel. Mengiste breaks new ground in this evocative, mesmerizing account of the role of women during wartime, not just as caregivers, but as bold warriors defending their country. Maza Mengiste will be on national book tour, including a stop at Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C. on September 29th. Maza, welcome to the program. Thank you. Right, first question. In 1935, Mussolini's fascist army invaded Ethiopia. And the Shadow King looks at the role of women as warriors who were instrumental in defeating the Italians. So before we discuss the novel, why is this invasion of Ethiopia considered the first conflict of that war? This war decided, in many ways, the alliances that would fold into the Allied or Axis sides of World War II. uh, When Mussolini invaded Ethiopia, he was not yet aligned with Adolf Hitler. And the League of Nations, Britain particularly, and France wanted to do everything to appease him so that he doesn't, quote, go to the other side. Once he invaded Ethiopia, they, um, they stepped back. They said, well, you know, if we just let him do this, maybe he'll stop and we can avoid a, a real war. And then he allied with, uh, with Adolf Hitler, with the Nazis, by 1941. And at that point, Britain and France understood this is a world event. This is not just about one small country. We need to step in, or we are going to lose all of their colonies, possibly, that they had left in, um, in Africa, and this would carry the war from Africa back to Europe. They, they stepped in. And we had then the alliances that would continue into World War II. And what is your family's connection to this conflict? My father's brothers fought in this 
war. His cousins fought in the war. His uncle had an army in an area in Godjam, which is in the northern highlands of Ethiopia. My, I had heard stories growing up told by my grandfather of these men who were proud, fierce warriors battling a better equipped European army and winning and, and fighting for Ethiopia's independence. I had those stories. Um, I had no idea that there were other stories in my family that, frankly, I didn't hear until not long ago. And uh, this involved my great-grandmother, Gete, who was just a girl when Mussolini was getting ready to invade. And Haile Selassie put a call out, a mobilization call, and said that the eldest member of every family needed to get their gun and come to war, go to a recruitment camp and start training. She was the eldest, but she was a girl. She was way too young. She had, was in an arranged marriage, but she was even too young to live with an adult husband. When her father wanted to give the gun to her husband so that he could represent the family, she said, no, this is my gun. I'm the eldest. My brothers are too young. I'll go. And when he resisted, she went before a group of judges and pled her case, and they gave her the gun, and she won. She went to war. The women in your family had played a central role in this conflict. You maybe, when you were young, you assumed it was the men. Yes, yes. And your impression was that your grandmother went before um, a version of court or village elders to plead her case, and they, they gave her the gun. Yes, my, my great-grandmother went, and she, I th you know, it's hard to imagine that a young girl could win a court case against her father, but she did. And I think, uh, when I think about the extraordinariness of that, two things come to mind. One, I think she could have pleaded that she was actually following Haile Selassie's proclamation to the letter. And I think in that might have worked for them. But the other thing that I've heard about my great-grandmother, uh, and also having met her, is that she was incredibly stubborn. She was petite, um, not very big. When I met her, she was in bedridden, but she could command an entire room, even from her bed. I remember that, and there have been countless stories of, of her doing things that, as my family members would say, that only a man would do, um, and succeeding in, in different ways. So I think she had that personality even as a young girl. I should have mentioned this in the introduction, but over the weekend, just before we were um, having this discussion, you have an, an article published in the Wall Street Journal, and it touches upon you visiting remote parts of the country um, while you were finishing up some research for this novel. Was there anything that surprised you when you went on this journey? I think you went with your mother and a guide. Yes. Where some of the battles took place. I was surprised by how recent this felt in terms of historical memory for me once I got to these sites, that I could go to certain locations and I could still see remnants of these buildings that had been used as prisons. Or I could look and I could imagine some of the battle sites and the terrain where this would have happened. There were places where um, 
a guide would point and say, over there is where they kept prisoners in a cave. And the caves are still there. So everything felt very immediate for me. There is a huge cast of characters in your novel. And again, the, the novel is The Shadow King, and we're speaking with Maza Mengiste. Um, the grounding character for me is a girl named Hirut. Um, she's an orphan girl who lives in a wealthy home as a servant. And it is remarkable to witness her overcome personal horrors and then rise to a position of authority during the conflict. It had to be harrowing and thrilling to create this character. Can you talk about creating Hirut? I was really interested in the perspective of this war, the perspective of war from someone who has a different concept of what country means. Um, Hirut is a servant. She has not gone very far from her home, maybe five kilometers walking to market, walking back, going to get water, going to the river. And so when somebody says, you have to fight, we have to come together and fight to keep our country free, how does she conceive of country when she's only been five kilometers from home? And what does patriotism mean when the person who should be protecting the country is attacking you physically. So I, I wanted to ask questions of loyalty and betrayal, of patriotism and nationalism, and also auto- autonomy on the part of Hirut. Um, I imagined her thinking at some point when she um, is fending off sexual advances of the person who is supposed to be leading the army. I wanted her to think about, well, aren't I my own country? Who am I really protecting? If this man who's supposed to be fighting for my freedom as well as Ethiopia's freedom is attacking me at night. So I, um, I wondered about the questions of people who were the poorest of the poor, who had a different concept of country who might have thought it's just it's the land I'm on, but it's also the body that's on this land. And she was, for me, a fascinating person or character to follow through the war because I feel that when people are called to war, they're called, they go, but they go for many different reasons and they fight for many different reasons. And then at the, the outset or the, the overarching figure in this conflict is the emperor, Haile Selassie. And I think everyone knows a little bit about Selassie, but maybe has a different impression of whether he was a, a great strongman or um, a, a despot. Maybe, maybe there are many names attached to him. He ruled Ethiopia for 44 years. And in the story, you, you go into his mindset, uh, particularly as he left for exile in England when Italy was invaded. And and at about halfway point in the novel, we, we start to learn about the Shadow Kings um, as it relates to Selassie, who had left the country. Um, and there's this nice line in, in the, um, the book, Shadow Kings are employed when leaders couldn't be in two places at once. They had their body doubles. So I'd like to know, how did you come to learn about Shadow Kings and was a shadow king actually employed um, in the absence of Haile Selassie when he left f- for exile? No. 
I'm I made that up. Okay. But, uh, let me let me backtrack a little bit. Emperor Haile Selassie, like emperors in Ethiopia, was called a son, S-U-N, unto his people. And I wondered what would happen when the son leaves the country, and now suddenly the country's in shadow, under, you know, fighting in war. What happens then? Um, I know that we know that many leaders have had doppelgangers. We've had, I, I've read of Mussolini, I think, having more than one. And I believe that Hitler also had some. You know, these are these, just by chance, they, poor, poor human beings who, um, who are employed, or not even employed, but maybe forced to do this, um, this kind of service for war. And I imagined um, what would happen if Haile Selassie left and the people really, somebody thought, well, let's see if we can continue to galvanize people by creating this, I say the shadow king, but maybe a fake emperor. I know historically that doubles have been used in war in Ethiopia. I believe in the first conflict with Italy, there was somebody who impersonated the emperor. And this was to serve as a decoy, to send the enemy in one direction while the army came in another. But there's also something about the, the Ethiopian way of fighting, which is very different from a Western mode of, of warfare. If, if you'll, not you'll notice in my, in my novel that on the Italian side, the colonel, Carlo Fucelli, is always on a hill observing his troops fighting yeah. and giving commands. This is how it's done in the West. In Ethiopia, that commander would always be at the front. He would always be leading the charge. He leads by example. And so when, an, when that leader falls, the army stops because they're not quite sure what to do without, a, without that leader. When Emperor Haile Selassie left the country, it was as if the leader of every leader of every army in Ethiopia, that leader, he left. What, what were the armies going to do? And it was a completely demoralizing blow to the military. It was the first time in history that a commander had ever left his troops. And he left and went to England. And I think um, there was a lot of resentment amongst Ethiopians. Did he leave for diplomatic reasons or did he flee to save his life? And I wanted to create a character who was well aware of the ambiguities of that leaving. I say, I'm s using the word, the verb leave and there are people who would correct me and say, actually, he fled. He didn't He leave. fled. <laughs> so hmm. those two verbs could tell entire stories in and of themselves. And there's a moment in the book where Haile Selassie looks into a dictionary, and he looks up the word flight, and then he says, there's no ignoring what he's done, which is flee. Hmm. Um, and I wanted him to contemplate that and to understand that there were people who said he left them or fled. Well, that, this is a good time to ask you about something that I found really intriguing. And I, as I was reading it, I was just thinking about the warrior mentality in the book. And you just described the kind of differences between the Italian approach and the Ethiopian approach to conflict. Um, okay, so the, the resistance fighters in Ethiopia didn't have modern weapons. 
They they were they had gathered all of all of the guns from all over the country, regardless of their age, um, and they had that in their small arsenal. But it seemed to me they had something much more powerful. They had they had this kind of I don't know a, a spiritual approach to fighting, and and maybe it had to do with this shadow king you have introduced. It inspired them to think about the the different forces that can can be present on the on the war field. And I felt like there was, in Kidane, who was a major character in the book and a war leader, he was able to live in the real world and then access his kind of ancestral spirits. How did you get into that headspace of of the Ethiopian warrior mentality as you were writing this? I had to think about what, what what was it like to, to, to charge at an army that you know is better equipped than you. You don't necessarily have camouflage uniforms. You have your white traditional clothing. So you're, you're a target wherever you are charging from. You are a living target for them. And they can kill you, and they will likely kill you because they have better equipment. That kind of reality establishes a different kind of philosophy I think, a different philosophy to, to fighting. Um, Carlo Fucelli tells his men, the only thing to do now is survive, you know, as they're getting ready to go into a battle. The Ethiopians think the only thing to do now is to kill because they know they're going to die. And when you um, are able to shed one idea, which is I need to survive, and you completely embrace, I'm going to die, but I need to take some people down with me. It's a completely different approach to fighting. And that, I felt, was um, very Ethiopian in, in the sense that that rhetoric was also underlying almost every story I heard as a child. It plays on a very deep emotional level, and I found it remarkable because the Italians were mocking the Ethiopian superstition, but ultimately that that superstition or that connection to spirit was what led the Ethiopians to 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 defeat the Italian army. And the other element, though, I found that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but or if I read this a little bit differently, but when we switched to Haile Selassie's point of view, and he had like a small cross in his palm, and he was reading the Bible, it felt like such a maybe sterile is not the right word, but a flat spirituality compared to what was happening on the, on the, uh, the field. Was that intentional? You know, I, now that you, it's interesting to hear you say that. I'm not sure it was an intentional thing as much as me wanting to render as authentically as I could imagine what, what Haile Selassie's spirituality might have been like, let's say, safely in his drawing room in Bath versus these soldiers who are charging down a hill. It also, I could not help thinking about the stories that I heard about these soldiers, um, both in the first con- uh, confrontation with Italy in, 18, in the eight, late 1890s and then this one in 1935, um, Again and again, I would hear accounts of soldiers charging against these Italians and then looking over from one side to the other side of them and seeing angels running alongside them. And 
you know, when, when you're seven, eight, nine, ten, and you're hearing those stories, there's nothing that tells you that can't be true. Um, and I would hear those stories which, with such conviction that that was something that I wanted to emulate in, in some way, that the kind of spirituality that these warriors had was a spirituality of angels who were so furious that they were out there to kill Italians, too. Okay, and this is a good time to ask about the structure, because what you have done in this immense, sweeping historical work of art, really, and it is a work of art, um, the structure is something that I don't see every day, and I, and we have a lot of listeners who love historical fiction and love to write. How did this structure come to you? We have chapters and something called interludes, and then there are moments of chorus where it's almost like kind of a, a more of an abstract explanation of backstory. How, and, and it's, and it's the, the entire um, effect is really complete and fully rendered. How did you come up with this? Well, thank you for saying that, because that was... Um it was uh it came over a series of years and and drafts but i was very what's the word i was completely attuned to some of my favorite writings i went and reread things that i loved um homer's iliad aeschylus agamemnon the chorus there that's just men who were tired, and they're tired of Clytemnestra, and they just want Agamemnon. Um, but they had a personality. I was looking at Toni Morrison's language that I've often described as just thunderous, you know, on this page, on the page. And then there was E.L. Doctorow, um, Ragtime, but also the Book of Daniel. And I went through and I read all those books, and I said, what is it that I can glean from all of these writers? And I kept thinking of Homer's Iliad and the way that the, you know, the beginning is with these, this choral voice that says, sing muses of an angry man. And you have the, the Greek tragedies and that chorus that weaves in. And then you know, Dr. Rose, the way he, he took, he seemed to take a narrative apart and sometimes switch from third to first. And I wanted to play around with, with that kind of structure. It took a long time to make it feel like it was a cohesive work as opposed to a patchwork of different styles. But another challenge that I had set myself, and it was purely my own personal thing, and had n it was more of the writer in me challenging the writer in me for book number three was um, how far can you push this structure? How much can you lean on it? Um, how much stress can you put on a book without it having to collapse? So I, I asked myself that, and then I just wanted to have fun. And when the chorus comes in here, they're really the ones that say, this is what you think you know, but this is the way it really happened. And I, and I had a blast with them. But I want to tell you, when I was reading this novel, there was a headline that said the Italian government had just collapsed. And, and we know that the far right is gaining more momentum in the country. Do you see some parallels between the themes in your novel and what's happening today in Europe and in Italy? 
I mean, I think the novel deals with the rise of fascism. It deals with these fascist ideologies that that can that think that certain groups of people are lesser than other groups of people. So yeah, I really, yeah, there's a hierarchy, and I see the the parallels to that. I think the irony of of Italy's anti-immigrant rhetoric is that um, many of these people who are coming to Italy in boats, who are trying to escape the, the gulags in Libya, are Eritreans who, who were part of an Italian colony. You know, they're Ethiopians. There's a relationship there that Italy cannot ignore. Um, but I also find, when I think about this war of Mussolini's reasons for invading Ethiopia, part of the reason he invaded Ethiopia was that it was an embarrassment to him that so many Italians were migrating to Australia and to the United States, that Italy was losing masses of people to migration. They were the immigrants. So why not have a colony in Africa that you could technically call Italy and send all those people there so that nobody technically leaves Italy? And so Ethiopia was going to be a point of migration for Italians. They were going to be the migrants. Um, And I find that completely ironic in um, thinking about what's happening today in Italy. The territorial mindset of a strong man. Yeah. Well, this is a remarkable novel. I have one last question for you. And I'll remind everyone that you um, are a professor at Queens College. You teach creative writing. Is there a book that you like to recommend that most people have perhaps never heard of? Yes. Um, I would recommend it. A, it's a book by a Croatian writer named Dasha, D-A-S-A, Drindic, D-R-N-D-I-C. There's only one vowel in the last name, Drindic. And it's a book called Trieste. And it's um, set in World War II, and in terms of structure and storytelling and actually the narrative that it, that it reveals, I find it one of the best books that I've read in a while. That's a wonderful recommendation. I haven't heard of it. Well, I want to remind everybody that our guest is Maza Mengiste. Her novel is The Shadow King. It will be published in September by W.W. Norton and Company. Maza, thank you so much for coming to the program. It's a pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com. (laughs) 